Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. So today I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. And then after... I finish reading, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, uh, thank you, John, for reading for us this morning. Uh, Well, good morning, everyone. Um, It's so good to see you all here this morning. My name is Michael Badger. I am one of the elders, uh, pastors of Redeemer Church, and uh, so thankful that you guys are here to to worship with us. Um, As uh, Paul said, we're going to be continuing our look at the Holy Spirit, our study on the Holy Spirit. And then we're doing things a little bit differently. Usually we don't do things topically like picking just the subject of the Holy Spirit and, and preaching about that. We usually like to do it uh, by going through one book of the Bible just at a time, but we're doing it a little bit differently and, and we're kind of in the middle of, uh, of this series on the Holy Spirit. And last week we began speaking about that Holy, how the Holy Spirit gifts His church. How the Holy Spirit gifts the church. And we talked about uh, how there are certain giftings of the Spirit that are a, a source of a little bit more kind of inter-church debate than others. On one hand, you have the cessationists who believe that the sign gifts, such as speaking in tongues and, and prophecy, which we saw last week, is a little bit different of a kind of prophecy than the Old Testament type of prophecy. Um, and then healing. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have kind of the complete opposite of that. You have the continuationists who believe all of those, of those giftings of the Holy Spirit, those, those sign gifts, you could call them, uh, continue and will continue until Christ comes again. And now I gave my reasoning for being a continuationist, which you can uh, go back and listen to uh, last week's sermon uh, on our audio recordings, and you can kind of hear why I take that particular uh, stance on things. But I, I do believe that those gifts do continue, that the, that the Holy Spirit gives them out. Uh, but we also talked about how a lot of those Sign gifts or, or uh, miracle gifts, some people like to call them, are often misunderstood. Uh, they're often abused. They're often taken out of the context where you find them within Scripture. And one of the things that, that we really hold true to here uh, at Redeemer Church, or one of the things that we, we truly believe, is that the Holy, or the Holy Scripture is our standard and measure of faith. So everything that we believe, everything that we that we teach, we want to be absolutely rooted in God's word that we believe to be infallible and without error. And again, I've said this before, but sadly, that view of Scripture is is one, even within some churches, that uh, is not so popular these days. And so we want to hold to that. Uh, and so this week, we're going to uh, first look, uh, take a look at the baptism in or with the Holy Spirit. That's what we want to first take a look at this morning. Baptism in or with the Holy Spirit. And the reason why I actually want us to take a look at this is because there are, are some denominations and churches that tie speaking in tongues with baptism in the Holy Spirit. So we're, we're going to be also looking at the gifting of baptism. 
Um, and so I want us to kind of carefully and, and graciously and humbly look at what Scripture says about this subject, and then we will kind of use that as our launching pad into seeing what God's Word has to say about the gift of tongues. And so we, we want to kind of look at both this morning. But again, this is an area, possibly even more so than last week, where there are differing opinions. We are a church that are that is right now made up of several different theological backgrounds, and so there are differing opinions on this. And so I want us to remember to have grace with one another with this. All right, I, and I and I pray that you receive this message. If you disagree with me, that you receive it with with love and you receive it with grace. And I want us to remember, even after this, after the dust settles, after this, uh, after this sermon, that we, we want to strive for unity. And we want to submit ourselves to what the Word says, not, not just how we feel about things. Now, just as we did last week, we have a lot to dig into. Uh, it's going to be a, another teaching-heavy sermon, so I apologize in advance for that. Uh, but please pray with me and... Uh, We will ask for the Spirit to guide our time together this morning. Lord, we thank you, God, that we can gather together this morning, Lord, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and recognize that that the things that we're going to be talking about this morning are important. Um, And Lord, the the disagreements that we may have, let us remember that this is an in-house debate, if you want to call it that. Um, this is something that, uh, that brothers and sisters in Christ can disagree on and still call one another brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and so let us remember that. Uh, but Lord, ultimately, God, we want your Holy Spirit to be our guide this morning. We don't want to rest on our emotions. We don't want to uh, rest on our past experiences. Lord, we want to just humbly bend our knees to what your word says. And so I pray, God, that you illumine our minds this morning to your truth. Not what we think is our truth, but your truth, God. And I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so as I said this morning, we uh, want to first look at what does the phrase baptism in the Holy Spirit actually mean. Baptism in the Holy Spirit. And as with so many things when it comes to theology, there are actually uh, really two understandings. You know, there's there's not frequently just, just one understanding of things. There's always these other understandings that we have to kind of figure out. And so for this one, there are two understandings. And the first is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that happens to a believer at some point after their new birth. After salvation, it happens after. It's a sort of uh, second experience that may happen months or years or or maybe even decades after conversion. And those within this this particular view, though though not all, believe that speaking in tongues is evidence of this baptism in the Spirit. And the second experience is also not one in which all Christians may partake in. Some, some do and some don't. And uh, what this kind of view says is that you should seek after that baptism, that second experience. Now the second understanding of baptism in the Holy Spirit is that it refers to the work of God that happens at the same time as new birth, that happens at conversion. It is an instantaneous event that happens in the life of all believers. And again, it happens at the moment of salvation. Now, I want us to somewhat quickly walk through what I believe the New Testament teaches in regards to this. Now, there are seven references within the New Testament that speak to baptism in or with the Holy Spirit. And I think we have those passages right there. The first four actually come straight out of the Gospels. When John the Baptist is speaking uh, of Jesus, and he says that while John baptized with water, Jesus will come and baptize people in or with the Holy Spirit. Now, the wording in Greek is the same in, in each of these passages, which are found in, in Matthew 11, Mark 1, 8, Luke 3, 16, and John 1.33. And so, just so you can kind of hear it, I will read the passage from Matthew 3.11. This is John the Baptist speaking. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I 
whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And friends, I know that your favorite part of a sermon uh, is when the Greek gets busted out, right? Who doesn't love that? But the Greek in this instance is actually very, very important for reasons I will explain shortly. But you will see if you flip to the next slide, that, that first sentence up top, that's what we're looking at right now. The Greek verb here is baptizo. And then after that, the words are added in pneumati hagio. In pneumati hagio. Now that, that word en is really important. Baptizo en, en. And it literally means with or in. With or in. And I know that's super boring. I know that's not interesting whatsoever, but I promise you it will be important later on. Now, as many scholars point out, it is not altogether clear to the people standing there with John the Baptist what John actually meant by being baptized in the Spirit. All that's clear is that Jesus was the one who will be coming to do the uh, baptizing in uh, in the Spirit. He's going to be the one that does it. That's all that's really clear from this passage. We're not told what it means. We're not told what it's going to look like. We're not told any of that. But then the next two passages that use this phrase are Acts 1.5 and Acts 11.16. And the picture starts getting just a little bit more clear. And they are references actually to the event of Pentecost in Acts 2. Acts 1.5 is Jesus talking to his disciples right before his ascension into heaven And he says, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He's talking about the upcoming day of Pentecost that would come. In Acts 11.16, Peter is referring back to the words of Jesus and says, I remember the word of the Lord and how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's again thinking back to what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so just to kind of recap, these are the first six references to the baptism in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit. And all of them are referencing to the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 that happened after the ascension of Jesus into heaven. Now, when that happened, when Acts 2 happened and the Holy Spirit fell and they were baptized in the, uh, in the Spirit, Uh, All of those who were with the disciples and the disciples themselves were filled with power and they began to speak in tongues. And the result of that was 3,000 people placing their faith in Jesus. And so that's what happened in Acts 2. Now the last mention, the very last mention of baptism in the Holy Spirit is found in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Now as Wayne Grudem points out, There are some translations that will say, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So some translations will say, for by one spirit, we were all baptized. Now those who are in the camp that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second experience are actually kind of somewhat committed to this particular interpretation. And the reason is because they would see the baptism by the Holy Spirit, the the baptism that Paul is talking about, and the baptism in the Holy Spirit that that Jesus and uh, that that Peter and uh, John were talking about are two separate baptisms. They're not the same. What John the Baptist and what Jesus and Peter are talking about and then what Paul is talking about are two separate baptisms. And this is very important because Paul is saying to the Corinthian church that this baptism, whatever it is, happened to all of them. It happened to all of them and is what caused them to become members of the body of Christ. In other words, this baptism happened at conversion and it happens to all believers. That's what Paul is saying. But here's where the Greek comes back into play. And when it comes to these difficult and and sometimes contentious passages, we must go back to the original languages. We must go back to the original languages. And so in the Greek, if you can go back to that Greek passage again, perfect. This passage in 1 Corinthians 12 
says that bottom one right there. In Hinai Numadi e Baptistima. I know that's a mouthful. I'm not even going to try to say it again. Uh, which translates in one spirit, we were all baptized. E-N, in one spirit, we were all baptized. And so what this means is that this is not another baptism that Paul is talking about. This is the same baptism done by Jesus into the Holy Spirit by whom we become members of the body of Christ. And this is really important. So Paul is declaring to the church in Corinth that the baptism of the Spirit does not come in another moment after conversion. In in Paul's mind, this is what he's saying, whether that be 10 minutes after, 10 months after, or 10 years after. To Paul, Baptism in the Spirit happens in the same moment as your new birth, and it is what makes you a member of the body of Christ. It's part of that that instantaneous moment of salvation that we all experience. And to Paul, sorry, rather, um, yeah, to Paul, baptism of the Spirit doesn't happen to just a few believers. It doesn't happen to just a, a select few, but rather it happens to everyone. Everyone who has been born again, everyone who who believes in Christ Jesus, were baptized in the Spirit. Because it says, for in one Spirit we were, not a few, not even many, but all baptized into one body. But I think that kind of brings up a question, right? It brings up the question of how are we to understand Pentecost? How do we understand what happened at Pentecost? As one theologian put the question, was Pentecost not an event where the disciples, having previously been saved by the Holy Spirit, now experience a subsequent experience, a subsequent empowering from the Holy Spirit that enabled them to to minister effectively? Didn't they have this second experience? But here's where we must understand an important rule in studying the Bible. That is, what is narrative is not always meant to be taken as normative. What is narrative is not always meant to be taken as normative. Let me explain. In Matthew 14, we have the story of uh, Peter walking on water, right? You guys remember that story? He climbs out of the boat to get to Jesus, but when he becomes afraid of the waves, what, what happens? He he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he, and he begins to sink. Now, the question I have for you is, is this story, is this story meant to be normative? Meaning, norm, a normal, ongoing test of faith. Is, is, this, is this meant to be normal? Is stepping out of a boat into the middle of Lake Champlain and walking or sinking in the water meant to be a gauge for levels of faith within the church? And I hope not. <laughs> And here's another, Abraham and Isaac. Should fathers regularly take their children up to Mount Mansfield to sacrifice them as a test of faith? No. So do you you, you see what I'm getting at here? When we are looking at narratives within Scripture, when we are looking at the accounts within the Gospel or within Genesis, we must be discerning on what in the narrative is and is not meant to be normative, an ongoing a regular principle that we are to uh, partake in as believers in our everyday lives. And the book of Acts is a narrative. It's a narrative telling us the unique events that took place at the beginning of the church, and we must carefully put these events within their correct redemptive historical context so that we can discern what is meant to be normal, what is meant to be ongoing in the life of believers And what was unique to that time? And so with all that being said, let's reiterate those questions. Was Pentecost not an event where the disciples, having previously been saved by the Holy Spirit, now experiencing a subsequent empowering or a subsequent experience from the Holy Spirit that enabled them to minister effectively? Didn't they experience this, the second experience of the Holy Spirit? Now, I do absolutely believe that the disciples, minus Judas, were saved, were regenerated before the events of Pentecost. I do believe that. I believe the Gospels make that 
absolutely clear in passages such as Matthew 16, uh, 16 through 17, and, and John 17, 8 and 12, and Matthew 8, 26, to name just a few places. I believe the disciples were saved before Pentecost. But here is what we must remember, and this is sometimes glossed over. The disciples lived during a unique and unrepeating time in history. And likewise, Pentecost was an extraordinarily unique day in history that it was a point of transition between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It was a transition point between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And more specifically, it was a transition point between the Old Covenant work and ministry of the Holy Spirit and the New Covenant work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So here's what I mean by that. In the Old Covenant, there was an incomplete experience of the Holy Spirit in the lives of, of Old Covenant believers. Now, the Spirit did do the work of salvation in the hearts of the people of God within the Old Covenant, in the, in the Old Testament. However, His work of empowering and, and mighty equipping for ministry and, and the fullness of indwelling was actually relegated to a very select few of people, such as the prophets. This was not a normal experience for the people of God in the Old Covenant. They didn't experience the, uh, the Holy Spirit in the way that the prophets, prophets experienced the Holy Spirit. They had a partial, incomplete experience of Him. And that is why the promises of God made in passages such as Joel 2.28 were so important for the Old Covenant believers. The promise of, uh, that says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. And so Joel here is prophesying the day when the Holy Spirit will indwell and mightily gift all believers. All of them. In the same way that was relegated to only a few in the Old covenant in the, in the Old Testament, Old Covenant. And this Old Covenant experience of the Holy Spirit is what the disciples experienced in the Gospels. That's what they experienced in the Gospels. They had not yet received the New Covenant experience of the Holy Spirit because Jesus was, was still with them. He was still with them, and he had, he had planned a special time when the old experience would end and the new experience would begin. And that is what we see at Pentecost. At Pentecost, finally, the prophecy of Joel began to be fulfilled, and the fullness of the Holy Spirit came to indwell the disciples and these believers in Acts 2. And as a sign that what Joel was speaking of had finally come to pass, they began to prophesy. and They began to speak in tongues and in many different known languages. And as many as 3,000 Jews who were in Jerusalem, who had come from all over uh, the map to celebrate Pentecost, which is actually a Jewish holiday, heard these believers preach the gospel in their own language, and they came to faith in Jesus Christ. It was an amazing, amazing day. Something that is never to be repeated. And I love that account. I mean, how, how wonderful is that? What, what, one of the things that blows my mind is that when we read passages like that and we see these 3,000 people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, friends, those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And one day we'll actually be able to meet them and ask them, what was that day like? That excites me. I hope it excites you. I think that's a really wonderful thing. But this inauguration of the New Covenant experience of the Holy Spirit wasn't quite finished yet at Pentecost. If you flip back to Acts 1, verses 7 through 8, you'll see what I mean. These are the last words that Jesus spoke to His disciples before His ascension. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. So friends, what is that? It's the Great Commission, right? It's the Great Commission. And the disciples didn't know it at this moment, but this was Jesus telling them that the gospel was, was not just for the Jews but for the Samaritans, who were half Jew, half Gentile, and it was for the Gentiles. It was, it was for everyone. 
And this is why we see kind of smaller, many Pentecosts happening in, in Acts 8 with the Samaritans and in uh, Acts 19 with the Gentiles in Ephesians. So the, so the details kind of slightly differ than that of Pentecost. But this, this extending of the gospel and the giving of the Holy Spirit in this New Testament experience in these passages in Acts is meant to show us the truth of 1 Corinthians 12, that there is no longer any distinction between Jew and Gentile. The gospel, the, the new covenant experience of the Holy Spirit is now for everyone. It's now for all believers. The new covenant has been fully ushered in and now all believers are able to have the full experience of the Holy Spirit and the power He brings. All of them. Such as the power for effective witness in ministry that you see in Acts 1.8 and Ephesians 4.8. Power of victory over the influence of sin in our lives. Praise God for that one, right? Romans 6 and Galatians 2. Power for victory over the enemy and demonic forces that seek to attack us. 2 Corinthians 10 and Ephesians 1 show that. And this new full experience of the Holy Spirit brings with it a never-seen-before mass distribution of spiritual gifts for ministry to all believers. To all believers. So here's what I believe is the big takeaway here. This kind of brings us back around to that original question. Are these second post-conversion experiences of the Holy Spirit in Acts meant to be normative, meant to be a pattern for us to follow? And I believe the answer to that would be no. I do not believe there is evidence within the Scripture to warrant a second baptism of the Holy Spirit that is experienced by believers now. Pentecost in Acts 2 and other many Pentecost narratives in the book of Acts were a remarkable time in history because those believers were living in a time of covenantal transition between the Old and New Covenants. Though the disciples and arguably the Samaritans in Acts 8 and the Gentiles in Ephesians or in Ephesus in Acts 19 received a second experience of the Holy Spirit after their conversion, it's not meant to be taken as a pattern for us because we're not living at that same time of the transitional work of the Holy Spirit. As Grudem says, in their case, believers with an old covenant empowering from the Holy Spirit became believers with a new covenant empowering from the Holy Spirit. But today, uh, but we today do not first become believers with a weaker old covenant uh, work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and wait until sometime later to receive a new covenant work of the Holy Spirit. Rather, you and I, like those Corinthians that Paul is speaking to in the church of Corinth, receive it all. We receive it all at the moment of salvation. When we were born again, we got the fullness of the Spirit right from the beginning. Right from the beginning, as Jesus baptized us in Him, as we were made a part of the body of Christ. That is what is to be normative, what is to be normal. A repeating experience for all believers after the unique events of the book of Acts. Baptism of the Spirit happened at Pentecost for the disciples, but it happened at conversion for the Corinthians and for us. Paul nowhere indicates that it is a post-conversion experience of empowering that we should seek out. You won't find that in any of the Pauline epistles. You won't find that anywhere. Now, some of you here this morning may be thinking, but I, but I had a second experience of the Holy Spirit in my life. And it was vivid and it was, it was real. And friends, I do not want to discount that or discourage you in that any way because I've had that moment too. But I do believe Scripture gives us a better understanding or better words than baptism of the Holy Spirit to describe these moments. As David Platt points out, there are definitely times where we come to in our spiritual lives where the Spirit of God transforms us, maybe, maybe in amazing ways, maybe in a, in a leap ahead in our spiritual walk kind of way. But rather than saying that this is being baptized in the Spirit, there is other terminology that Scripture actually uses for, for these moments, such as, such as anointing or being filled with the Spirit, or being filled with the Spirit. 
I believe the best example of this actually comes from Paul in Ephesians 5.18, where he says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, what? Be filled with the Spirit. The command here is to be filled with the Spirit. And this is written in what's called the present continuous sense. I know that's boring, but it means that it is something that is to continuously, continuously to be sought out. There are moments in our lives which we can have what, what, what feels like spiritual dry seasons, right? I don't know if, if I'm alone in that, but I'm sure everybody in here has experienced those moments of spiritual dry seasons, and it's often due to, to some sort of indwelling sin that we're struggling with or, or maybe even hardships that we're going through in life. But what Paul is saying is that we should seek a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. We should seek to be filled by the Holy Spirit, that He would make His presence known to us in our hearts in a real and fresh and felt way. But friends, Paul in Ephesians 5 is saying here that this filling of the Spirit isn't just a one-time event, but an event that can occur over and over again in a Christian's life. And it may involve a a momentary empowering for a a specific ministry, such as Peter in Acts 4.8, but it also might refer to the long-term characteristic of a person's life, like Stephen in Acts 3, where we're told that this deacon of the church was a man full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Man, I want that to be my descriptors when people talk about me. It's not, but one day. But either way, such filling can occur many times in a person's life. For example, even even though Stephen was characterized as being filled with the Spirit, nonetheless, we are told that he received a, a fresh filling of the Spirit when he was being stoned to death for preaching the gospel in Acts 7.55. He was was a man that was filled with the Spirit, but he received an even more filling of the Spirit in Acts 7. And so, if you had a second experience, if you had a second experience, friends, I don't believe the Lord is done with you yet. I don't believe that's where it stops. Do as Paul says and and yearn for, for a new filling of the Spirit. And friends, this is just my personal prayer, but I want us to be a church that is desperate that yearns, that thirsts to be filled again and again by the Spirit freshly. Friends, we don't want to coast as a church. We don't want to get in our just normal patterns of being and just think everything is fine and just get in, to get into these, these uh, rhythms of life and just, just coast through. We want to be, we want to be filled by the Spirit. We want the joy of our salvation to be restored to us daily. And so let us be a church that seeks to be filled by the Spirit freshly. Now, where does speaking in tongues fit into all this? Oh, I forgot, didn't you? We're not done yet. This is a two-hour sermon, so. Well, some, not all, but some of those who believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second experience after conversion holds that, that tongues is uh, evidence of being baptized in the Spirit. Now, I do not believe this to be the case as I do not believe that baptism in the Holy Spirit happens after conversion. However, as I have stated, I am a continuationist. I am a continuationist. So I do believe that the Holy Spirit still distributes this gift as he sees fit. But just as with prophecy, I believe that there is a lot of confusion, a lot of abuse, and and even misunderstanding when it comes to this gift and how it is defined and how it is said to be used within Scripture. I've been to churches in which this gift is supposedly used with some frequency. And what I saw was something that was completely foreign to the New Testament descriptions of the use of tongues. And so with the time that we have left, I want us to take a close look at what Scripture says about this gift. Now, again, I do want to be sensitive here, but I also want to remind us that experience does not equal biblical truth. All right, There are 
Other world religions that also claim to speak in tongues, such as uh, voodoo and African and Asian shamanistic religions. And so we need to remember that and know that subjective experiences are not enough to measure truth with anything. We must rely on God's word and see our experiences in light of it, right? And so, what is the gift of tongues? I believe it can be defined in two ways. The first is the miraculous gifting to speak intelligible languages, that is, human languages that the one speaking has not known prior to this gifting. Examples of this are found again in the books of Acts. In chapter 2, for instance, at Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit gives believers the gift of speaking in known languages. And this is repeated again in Acts 10 and in Acts 19. And so that's the first category of tongues, speaking in foreign human languages. Now for the second category, if you flip over to 1 Corinthians 14, and we're going to be spending the majority of our time, uh, the rest of our time together in 1 Corinthians 14. So if you want to flip there, <clears throat> take a look at verse 2. It says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he mutters mysteries in the Spirit. And so this second category is a type of, of unintelligible language that is not understood by men, but is directed to God in prayer and praise. 1 Corinthians 13, one chapter back, verse 1, may also be referencing both of these categories by saying tongues of men and angels. Now, how are these gifts of tongues exercised within Scripture? Whether it is the intelligible languages or the unintelligible language, there are two spheres in which they occur that you see in Scripture. The first is in private prayer, and the second is in public, in private prayer and in public. Now, Paul seems to be in favor of speaking tongues in private prayer. I believe this is what he is speaking of in verses uh, 2 and in verse 28, speaking to God in private prayer. However, however, Paul stresses, even when it comes to privately praying in tongues, that you should desire and seek and ask God to be given the gift of interpretation, even in your own private prayer. Look at verses 13 through 14. He is speaking of how we are to seek, above all else, the gifts that build up the church. Those are the most important gifts, the gifts that build up the church. And then he says this, starting in verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Now, here he is speaking of the use of tongues in public, but then in verse 14, he connects it with speaking tongues in private prayer. Verse 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Did you catch that? For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Friends, we are not a bifurcated people. We are, we're not a bifurcated, we're not a divided person. We're, a, we're a, a single being, our minds and our spirits together. And so Paul is saying very, very plainly that if you are only praying in your spirit via tongues, you're missing half the equation. You're missing half the equation. If you're, if you're praying in tongues, but you have no idea what you are saying, there really is no fruit, no true benefit to you because you don't know the words that you're saying. You don't know what you're, what's actually coming out of your mouth. And this is why Paul instructs those who have been given this gift to not exercise it without understanding in their minds what they are saying. He says this in, in verse 15, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. And so if you're here this morning and if you pray in tongues, the, the, the question to ask yourself is do you know what it is you're saying when you pray this way? Do, do you know? The gift of tongues is always, always tied to understanding. Always. They are never to be uncoupled. Ever. Just because it might, it might feel good to pray privately in tongues, if you have no understanding, if you have no interpretation, you are not receiving the true, full spiritual benefit 
you are not receiving the fruit. And so that's the, that's the first sphere of speaking in tongues. That's private prayer. The next is, of course, the public sphere, speaking tongues in public. Now, while Paul does not discourage this, he gives very specific rules and regulations for how it is to be done. <clears throat> Look at verses 6 through 11. 6 through 11. It says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? <clears throat> if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. And so what Paul is saying here is that if you begin speaking tongues in, in church, in public, uh, whether it be a human or, or heavenly language, but there is no understanding, it serves no purpose. It serves no purpose. That's what he is saying here. There are no biblical words or words of wisdom being given for the building up of the church. And remember, the primary purpose of the gifts of the Spirit are to build up the church. They're not just for yourself. They're for the building up of the church. And speaking in tongues in such a manner that the church cannot understand what is being said, Paul instructs, is like instruments making meaningless noises. He continues this point in verses 16 through 19. After speaking of the use of tongues in private prayer, he then slides back over into praying in tongues and worshiping in tongues in the public sphere, in church. He says, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, meaning praising God out loud in tongues without interpretation, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, and friends, this is key. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in tongues. Did you catch that? Paul is saying here that tongues without interpretation in the church <clears throat> are not as valuable as even five words of instruction that are understandable. Paul somewhat reiterates this point in verses 20 through 22 and then says in verse 24, even if an, <clears throat> excuse me, even if an unbeliever comes into the church and everyone is speaking in tongues with no understanding, then what are they going to think? They're going to think you're crazy. They're going to think you're insane. That's the words of Paul. And so Paul, beginning in verse 26, he sets out commands that the church is to follow in regards to the use of spiritual gifts, including tongues, within the public church service or any gathering of the church. And he says this. He says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for the building up. Remember, that's key. Everything within the church should be done for the building up of the church. Now pay close attention here in verses 27 through 28. It says, If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God, meaning pray silently. And so Paul here says that those with the gift of tongues are to exercise self-control. The fruit of the Spirit, self-control. Speaking in tongues is not a gift that is marked by uncontrollable, sporadic speech and outbursts. Paul says that if there are those who have something to say in tongues, it is to be done in an orderly fashion with three at most speaking in turn, one right after the other. Not just whenever a person feels like it. 
And as Paul says in verse 27, you are not to speak in tongues in whatever fashion if there is no interpreter. You are to exercise self-control and you are to pray silently. The exercise of gifts within the church gathering is for the building up. And Paul here clearly states that that cannot happen with the gift of tongues if there is no interpreter. Now, friends, I've been praying a lot about this sermon this week. And I've been praying that God would give me the boldness to say this this morning. But if you have been to a church service, if you have been to a church event or, or whatever else that has been characterized or accompanied by mass or even individual, sporadic, uninterpreted speaking in tongues, friends, you've got to know that that is foreign to the Scripture. And it is in direct conflict with Paul's instruction here in 1 Corinthians 14. Likewise, if you have heard of other teachers saying that speaking in tongues can be taught or can be picked up, then that person has a major misunderstanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in giving gifts. Listen to this direct quote from a charismatic manual used in many churches around the world. It says, a person should claim this gift, talking about tongues, in confidence when he is prayed with to be baptized in the Spirit. Yielding to tongues is an important first step and is worth putting effort into encouraging a person to yield to tongues, even to run the risk of being labeled imbalanced, which is the exact opposite of what Paul wants. Often, people can be helped to yield to tongues rather easily. After praying with a person to be baptized in the Spirit, the team member should lean over or kneel down and ask the person if they would like to pray in tongues. When he says yes, he should encourage him to speak out, making sounds that are not English. He should then pray with him again. When the person begins to speak in tongues, he should encourage him, after you ask to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and ask for the gift of tongues, then yield to it. Begin by speaking out, if necessary, beginning by just making meaningless sounds. The Holy Spirit will form them. Friends, this, is, this has absolutely no basis in Scripture. You will not find this anywhere within Scripture at all, not in the slightest. You will not find this in the Bible. You cannot be taught spiritual gifts. If you're here this morning and you are a continuationist like, like I am, I urge you to keep to Scripture with these things. We do not want to hold on to, to things because of subjective experiences or because we get caught up in our emotions. We want to give ourselves over completely to the teaching of Scripture. And it is very clear in the proper use of this gifts and in, and in many charismatic circles, this teaching from Paul has just been ignored. It's just been ignored. They've elevated emotions. They've elevated feelings over submitting to Scripture. And friends, God does want you to use all of the gifts that He has given you to their fullest. But friends, he wants you to do, to do that in a way that he has designed. Now, as always, much, much more could be said on this particular topic, but uh, I need to wrap this sermon up. And so the last thing I want to say on this is that the gift of tongues is not meant for every believer. While Paul does say that he wishes all to speak in tongues, he also says the same thing about singleness in 1 Corinthians 7 but he knows that it is not a gifting meant for everyone. Likewise, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5, are not meant to be taken as a command that every Christian should speak in tongues. And he makes this actually completely clear just a couple chapters back in 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 29. It says, Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, then helping, administrating, and then, at the very end, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak tongues? Do all interpret? The answer to that rhetorical question of Paul is no. We are not all gifted the same. 
We're not all given the exact same spiritual gifts. Not all are purposed by God to receive the gift of tongues. And it should not be taken as evidence as any extra higher plane of spirituality or or any extraordinary second experience. We need to be weary of any teaching that would create a two-tiered system of Christianity. In fact, of all the gifts that the Apostle Paul says that we should really pursue, as we said last week, is actually the gift of prophecy. Because above all others, it does the most work in building up the church. All right, now that was a a long sermon, I know, um, with a lot of straight teaching. uh, But next week, I promise, will be much shorter. Um, But let us close out in prayer. Thank you. Lord, thank you so much, Lord. God, for this this church that you have brought us all to this morning. Lord, thank you that, uh, God, I'm with brothers and sisters in Christ who are gracious, Lord, and desiring. God, no matter what what side they lean on, God, I know that they desire here this morning to to be uh, faithful to you, God. And so, Lord, I just pray, God, that we, we seek unity this morning. Lord, I thank you that, that you have gifted your church in, in such amazing ways, Lord, with, with so many different varied gifts, and that we can come together as this beautiful mosaic to build one another up, to see each other progress in our sanctification, to see one another become more and more and more like Christ. And Lord, I pray for the hearts of of the people in this church this morning whose whose previous beliefs may have been challenged this morning. God, whether they are cessationists who have been challenged to to see if if maybe the Lord is giving these gifts, or or Lord, if they're continuationists who who have been previously convinced that that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a second experience. God, I I pray for those people who have been been challenged by this sermon, God, that that you show them grace and peace, Lord, as as they wrestle through the text. But Lord, again, I just thank you so much that you have given us a church that strives for unity. Lord, we love you, and I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.